It's good to be with you, church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. So glad you're here. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we're in the very last chapter of the book, chapter 6, and we're in the very last section of that last chapter. Only a couple more sermons in Ephesians left. Paul has been awakening us to the reality that in the days that we are living, there is a cosmic war going on. I don't know if you knew that. In the days that we are living, there's a cosmic war going on. There's a spiritual warfare happening. And he's been calling the Christians, he's been calling us, he's been calling the church to put on the whole armor of God and get in the fight against the cosmic powers in this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because our warfare is not against flesh and blood, because our warfare isn't against people, human beings, but because it's against Satan and his demons, we have no chance of winning. We have no chance of winning unless we are given celestial resources. And so Paul has been teaching us about the armor of God, each piece and its function. Now, I know all of this sounds very Lord of the Ringish, right? Like a fairy tale. There's a cosmic evil power in this world, and we have to put on God's armor and get in the fight. But where do you think all those stories come from? And why do you think those stories resonate so deeply in the human soul? Why is it that when we read it, we know something about this is real, something about this is true? You know, I think when this life is all said and done, when we're sitting around King Jesus' throne, reminiscing, telling stories, I think we're going to be surprised to find out how much of our fairy tales were in fact realities, and how much of the concept of our realities were in fact fairy tales. It was just the work of the enemy bringing spiritual blindness, keeping us from seeing the way that they really are, how things really work. Let's go to God's word, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then here are the pieces that we've looked at for the last five weeks. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Here's the last piece that we're gonna look at today. And the sword of the spirit. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All right, so before we get into looking at the sword of the spirit, a quick question. Why do we have to fight? Why do we have to fight? Why do we have to put on the armor of God and get in the fight? 
Well, there are some very significant negative motivations, right, that we've talked about already. If we don't put on the armor of God, we leave ourselves exposed to all kinds of enemy attack, okay? But I also want us to look at the other side. If God, with the blink of an eye, can put away Satan and all of his demons, he can do that, and we know that one day he will do that, then why do we have to fight? Why do we have to put on the armor of God and fight? Does he need us to fight? Will he lose if we don't fight? Well, the simple answer, the positive motivation answer is that God gets more glory this way. He gets more glory when we fight. But again, how? The Bible tells us that there's coming a day when there will be a great celebration in the heavenlies, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. All this is saying is that there's coming a time when God is going to be finally, finally be putting away all of his enemies for good. And we're going to be singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and power. You see, power. There's going to come a day when we're going to be shouting out about God's power. And how will we be shouting out about God's power? One of two ways. One way is we could be shouting out about God's power because in our minds we intellectually know that God is powerful. But another way, we could be shouting out about God's power because we felt his power. Because we know and experienced his power. Experience, Ephesians 6.10 tells us that we put on the armor of God so that we might know and experience the strength of his might. The strength of his might so that we can know it. That's what Ephesians 6.10 tells us. We put on the armor and we get into the fight so that on that day when when we're celebrating and worshiping, we'll be able to shout out, I know that power. I know that power that puts away his enemies. There's been countless times, countless battles when I've been weak and losing, but then I put on the armor of God and I felt the strength of his might and I was able to put away his enemies, right? To the degree that you put on God's armor and join in the fight in this life is the degree to which you will be able to join in on worshiping God for his power in the next See, worship is the prize. God's glory is the goal. So let's get back to the armor. Let's read again in the text, verse 17. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So let's break this up by looking at three things. First, what is the sword of the spirit? What is the sword of the spirit? And then let's look at practically how do we fight with it? And then lastly, prayer. Let's conclude by looking at why Paul concludes his instructions on putting on the armor of God with the plea for us to pray. Three things, sword of the spirit, how do we fight with it, and prayer. First, the sword. What is Paul wanting us to understand? What is he wanting us to feel by calling us to take up the sword? First, he wants us to know and feel the urgency of the fight, the urgency of the fight. If I call you in the middle of the night and say, hey, get your gun, right? If I call you in the middle of the night and say, hey, get your gun, 
that statement in and of itself communicates an urgency, right? So simply by the fact that Paul is saying, hey, take up the sword, it's communicating an urgency to the fight. Second, by calling us to take up the sword, he wants us to know and feel the proximity of the fight, the proximity of the fight. When you're fighting with a sword, right, you're not fighting an enemy that's far off. You're fighting an enemy that's near, okay? He uses another word picture in an earlier verse where he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, right? Wrestling. Wrestling shows the proximity of the fight. You might think that soldiers don't wrestle, but certain soldiers wrestle. Desperate soldiers on the front lines wrestle. Soldiers on the front lines where the heat of the battle is so intense, it's so intimate, It's so life-threatening that you're literally rolling around, wrestling on the ground with your enemy. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're you're wrestling right now. Paul doesn't say, take up your spear, right? He doesn't say, take up your bow and arrow. He doesn't say, ready the trebuchet. He says, take up your sword. Why? Because he's preparing us to fight an enemy that's not way out there, but it's right here, near He's communicating to us the proximity of the fight. The kind of warfare that you and I will be in is a fight where we have to do hand-to-hand combat. We face an enemy that's near. The third thing I want us to see about the sword is that it's both defensive and offensive. When we look at all the other pieces of the armor, they're defensive pieces of armor. The sword is the only weapon that can be both defensive and offensive. The breastplate of righteousness, right? We talked about how it protects the vital organs. The helmet of salvation, the sandals of the gospel of peace, they each protect some special part of the soldier, while the shield might even protect the entire body of the soldier. These are all defensive and meant to protect against some method of attack, some scheme of the enemy. But the sword is the only piece of the armor that pushes the entire enemy back, right? When you're fighting with the sword, it can push the entire person of the enemy back, not just protect against certain method of attack, not just protect against some scheme of the enemy. You might say that by putting on all the other pieces of the armor, you could have assurance that you will not be defeated, but unless you take up the sword, right? But unless you take up the sword, we won't experience triumph in our battles. You see, the Christian fight is not just about defense. Christian fight is not just about protecting. It's about going on the offense. It's about attacking. Jesus said in Matthew 11, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven is to be taken forcefully by the violent. We are the violent people that Jesus is talking about. John Piper says this, there is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But violence against whom or what? Not other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in with the peacetime mentality. 
It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's a violence against the impulses in our own soul towards racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. If by the spirit you killed the deeds of your own body, you will live. Christianity is war on our own sinful impulses. Is there a violence in you, Christian? Is there a violence in you? Church, how many of you have made peace with your sin? A sin that's been in your life for so long, it's plagued you for so long, you've just grown tired of fighting it, so you've just made a peace treaty towards it. You've just come to terms with the fact that it's just gonna be something that's gonna be in your life for the rest of your life. I know that specifically, pornography is a sin that's plaguing our church. We hear about it all the time. It's ruining marriages. It's destroying singles, college students. Maybe you're taking up the defensive measures, right? When the enemy attacks you, trying to make you question your salvation, are you even saved? You looked at that again, right? Maybe you're taking the defensive measures. Maybe you're putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Maybe you're clinging to the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. Maybe you're clinging to Jesus' righteousness alone and not your own righteousness. And so you're defending against the accusations that come after you've sinned, which is all good. We need to do that. But what about actually killing the sin? What about actually killing the sin? Do you have any hope of it? Or have you settled for the counterfeit victory of just looking at it less? Have you settled for the counterfeit victory of just looking at it less? Paul says here to take up the sword, Christian, which is the word of God. When the temptation comes, take up the sword. Go to Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Go to the text that's answering your question. How can I be pure, God? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. What's he doing? He's praying. God, with my whole heart I'm seeking you. Right? Let me not wander from your commandments. Pray the scriptures. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. For some of you, when the temptation comes, it's already too late. Why? Because you're running empty on God's word. There's none stored up. There's not even even enough word to make you go seek the word, right? When the temptation isn't there, store it up. Store it up so that it's there. So when the temptation comes, you already have something to turn to. Maybe pornography isn't your battle, but whatever sin you've been plagued by, do this. Do not be content with just not losing ground. Don't just settle to defend against the accusations that come after you've sinned, but get on the offensive. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Actually take ground, advance, attack until you put the sin to death. And so that's the sword of the spirit. It shows us the urgency of the fight. It shows us the proximity of the fight. It enables us not just to defend, but to go on the attack and achieve victory in our battles. Now we've already seen a bit of how you do this, but let's continue to look at practically, how do we fight with it? 
How do we fight with the sword? How do we take it up into battle? I can't think of a better place to take you than Matthew chapter four. It's a familiar story. Matthew four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I always thought that verse was funny. After he fasted 40 days, he got hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this isn't the whole story, but it's basically the formula. Satan comes to tempt Jesus three times. And each time we see Jesus fight. Okay, this is a battle scene that we're looking at. Each time we see Jesus fight. How does he fight? Well, he takes up the sword, doesn't he? He takes up God's word. He fights each temptation with these powerful words. It is written. It is written. It is written. Three times. And he quotes directly, word for word, from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what is this showing us? The first thing that it's showing us is the power of God's word. The power of God's word. Because we see Jesus himself taking it up. Okay, This shows us that the sword of the spirit is not some second class weapon. It's not some plastic toy weapon made up of styrofoam that God's given his kids to kind of play fight with. But then when Jesus himself goes into battle, he takes up some real powerful weapon. No, this is the weapon Jesus himself takes up into battle. That's how powerful this weapon is. When the tempter came, the first thing that Jesus turned to was God's word. When temptation comes, what's the first thing you turn to? What is the first thing you turn to? Jesus turned to the most powerful weapon that is available to him. And because it's so powerful, look at the manner in which Jesus wields the sword of God. The manner in which Jesus wields the sword. He directly quotes it, doesn't he? He says, it is written. He doesn't just ish around it. He doesn't battle Satan by saying generally true things about God. He doesn't say, well, Satan, God's going to provide for me. Well, that would be true, but he doesn't fight that way. Instead, he quotes directly from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how he fights. He directly quotes. He doesn't lose the edge of the sword. I'm so guilty of this. This is the part that I was so convicted on this week. I don't know if you could relate, but a lot of times I I kind of know the Bible verse, right? I could generally recall the general principle of the scriptures. I I could recall the overall point of the Bible, but I haven't dedicated it to memory, and I don't take the time to go and specifically look it up, and that's my version of taking up the sword of the Spirit into battle. And I was reading a Charles Spurgeon sermon on this, and he said that when we do that, it's like going into battle with the sheath still on the sword. Going into battle with the sheath still on the sword, that we lose the power of its edge. The edge that's sharper than a double-edged sword. The edge that pierces deep between bone and marrow. You see, the chainmail of our own sinfulness, the chainmail of the sinfulness of others, it's too thick to be pierced by a sheath. We need the edge. We need the edge of the sword. A brother or sister in Christ is in some sin and you're trying to counsel them. 
You're trying to get in the fight with them by telling them some truth. But none of it seems to be working. Have you been there? None of it seems to be working. Why? Because all we're offering are generalities. We're giving them an ish translation of God's word. We're taking up the sword of the spirit with the sheath still on and it pierces nothing. We need the edge. We need the edge of the sword. Another practical thing to see is that Jesus had to wield the sword three times. See, if anyone could have just swung the sword once powerfully and had the enemy running, it was Jesus. And of course he could have done that, but he doesn't. He wields the sword three times. You guys ever thought about that? Why is this temptation story so long? Why is Jesus over and over and over fighting this enemy? To show us the persistence we need to have in wielding God's word and rightly handling it. Many of you, you've gotten discouraged, you've lost hope because you've said, I've claimed God's word, it hasn't worked. Well, maybe you've done it once. Maybe you've done it twice. But have you done it a third time? Have you done it again and again and again? Remember, God's word is not some magical incantation. Temptation comes your way and you expel the armus with God's word and <laughs> temptation just magically goes away. That's, that's not how it works, all right? When we cling to God's word, when we wield it over and over again and again, what we are placing our hope in ultimately is not some magical formula found in those specific words, but in the person who said those words, right? When we take it up over and over and over again, we're reminding ourselves, we're not just telling the enemy, we're reminding ourselves of the one who said these words, that those promises are sure that, God, I believe you. Every time you take it up, God, I believe you. Every time you take it up, God, I trust you. That's what we're doing when we take up the sword over and over and over again. What is all of this showing us? It's showing us that Jesus knew how powerful God's word was, and he had been training to wield the sword of the spirit all his life. You know, the first 30 years of Jesus' life, the Bible is mostly silent on, but we know exactly what he was doing those 30 years. We know exactly what he was doing. Why? How? Because of the way that he's fighting. Because of the way that he's skillfully wielding the sword. He's not fumbling around the Bible trying to find what he could use to, against Satan, right? He knows exactly what to say. He has it committed to memory. No one ever accidentally, by happen chance, became an expert swordsman, right? I wish it was that easy. I wish we could just be a Christian and at year five, all of a sudden, master level, right? No one accidentally, by happen chance, becomes an expert swordsman. You might accidentally cut yourself with the sword. Some of us have done that. But you'll never accidentally learn to rightly handle it. And so what does training in God's word look like practically? Well, here at the Stone, you could take an equipping class. We offer a group of them every semester. We're going to offer a new group of them in the fall. Look for the announcements. You could apply to join a men's or women's development program. It's a nine-month kind of intense program, all right? And I think we talked about this many times, but I think going through a Bible reading plan is one of the most foundational and effective ways that we can be trained in God's Word. You can find it on our website, austinstone.org, under the Resources tab. There's a, Bible re there's a Bible reading plan that we've posted. And if you follow it, if you go through it every day, it will take you through the entirety of the Old Testament once and the New Testament and Psalms twice in one year. Think about that. 
you go through it, there won't be a single passage in the Bible that you haven't read in the last year. And you can journal through the Bible reading plan. We call it the REAP method, R-E-A-P, very simple. You read the text and decide what passage you want to reap through, right? That's R. E, examine. You write down your observations, okay? So let's say you picked Matthew chapter 4, and then you write down your observations. I see that Satan is tempting Jesus, and Jesus every time goes to God's word to battle him, right? And then A, apply it to your life. When temptations come, I haven't been going to God's word. So I need to go through God's word and look for promises of God that I can cling to when those temptations come. And P, pray, God, will you help me achieve victory in these battles as I cling to your word, God, right? And do this together. Uh, I reap, I write my journals in Evernote, and there's a group of men that I email my reaps to every day. Accountability, do it together. And as you're reaping, if there's some particular passage that you want to devote to memory, write it down on a note card. Create for yourself a stack of note cards. Write it down in Evernote and tag it. Remember, memorizing is what we do to ensure that we don't lose the edge of the sword. And so that's how we practically take up the sword of the spirit. When we go into battle, it should be the first thing that we pick up. When we should, we should train in it daily through a Bible reading plan. Train in it seasonally through equipping classes and development programs. We need to commit scripture to memory so, so that we don't lose the edge of the sword. And we need to persist in wielding it just like Jesus did. Last point, praying at all times. Praying at all times. Ephesians 6, 17 through 18. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul is concluding this section on spiritual warfare, really concluding the entire book of Ephesians with the plea for God's people to pray, okay? What he's saying is, as you put on each piece of the armor, pray, okay? As you're praying, put on each piece of the armor. And as you put on the whole armor of God, keep on praying, okay? It's kind of a circular argument. You pray so that you can put on the armor, and you put on the armor so that you can keep praying. What he's saying is that prayer is the means and the end of the Christian fight. What Paul is saying is this. Don't miss this. Paul is saying is this. Prayer is the battle. Prayer is the fight for the Christian. Let's remember Jesus again. When we think about Jesus' mission, we think about the cross being the battlefield, right? We think about the cross, we think about Golgotha as the place in which the battle for our salvation was fought and it was won. And of course, that is true. But if you read through the Gospels, I would argue that by the time Jesus went to the cross, by the time Jesus got to the cross, the battle was really already won. You see no resistance coming from the enemy, only the inevitable victory taking its course. Why do I say that? Because the real battling we see not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane. The real battling we see at Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the place where we see Jesus ask, will you watch with me? Will you pray with me? Gethsemane is the place where we see him distraught to the point of death, it says, sweating drops of blood. Gethsemane is the place where he prays, Father, will you let this cup pass from me? Father, is there any other way? But Gethsemane is also the place where Jesus triumphs, 
the place where he wrestled in prayer until he was able to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus at Gethsemane, Jesus' prayers didn't prepare him for the battle. For Jesus, prayer was the battle. See, prayer doesn't prepare us for the battle. Prayer is the battle. Jesus spent more time praying about the cross than he did on the cross. Prayer, that's the fight for faith. That is the true spiritual warfare. How do we know? Because where in all of Christian living do we feel the most resistance? Where in all of Christian living do we feel the most amount of resistance from the enemy? Where in all of our spiritual disciplines do we struggle the most? Prayer, right? Maybe reading the Bible. Maybe you go to the Word. Maybe meeting with community, right? Maybe you have not forsaken the meeting with one another. Giving, as hard as it is, maybe you started giving. But what about prayer? How's your prayer life? I heard Pastor Tim Keller once say that it's much easier to preach for 30 minutes than to pray for 30 minutes. He admitted that he's preached some bad sermons, he's rambled, he's lost his place, but things have not gotten so bad that he forgot altogether he was preaching, right? But there's been countless times where he's been on his knees praying to the king of the universe and he's just forgotten that he's been praying. You guys relate? I can't. You start praying and then all of a sudden you end up cleaning your garage. (laughs) Oh yeah, I gotta go do that, right? John Newton, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, said that praying is so hard that sometimes the buzzing of a fly in the room is an overmatch for his strength. In a battle, where will you feel the most resistance? Where will you feel the fiercest fight when you're at the heart of it, when you're at the enemy's stronghold? That's why prayer is so hard. But that is the enemy's stronghold. What happens when you take the enemy's stronghold? Triumph, victory. The devil might even let you become the greatest theologian of our time as long as you don't pray. Ephesians is one of the most highly theological books in all of the Bible. And Paul ends with the plea for God's people to pray. Why? Because he knows that none of the knowledge matters. None of the theology matters if God's people don't pray. The Bible tells us that knowledge puffs up. And there are some of you in here, when I was talking about Bible reading plans and memorizing scriptures, you wanted to yell amen, right? I was preaching to the choir. But let me ask you a question. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? It's a question that I had to ask myself. I didn't like the answer. Has all your knowledge of the scriptures, has all your amassing of theology, theology, has it led you to pray? Has it led you to pray? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, if your theology doesn't lead you to pray, there's something wrong with your theology. Well, what is theology? It's coming and getting to know God, right? So as you see God more and more clearly, more clearly, if it doesn't more and more drive you to do this in prayer, there's something wrong with the way that you're getting to know God. If you see God the way that he truly is, of course we're going to pray. Of course we're going to bow our knees before him, right? If all of our theology is not leading us to pray, there's something wrong with our theology. That's why many of us can know all the right theological answers and yet be living an entirely defeated life. A life filled with knowledge but not filled with any power 
because of our prayerlessness. Church, as we conclude our series on spiritual warfare, the great danger that we face as a church is not that we don't put on the armor of God, but that we do put on the armor of God, but still not pray. That's the great danger. Let's pray as we're putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of the gospel of peace. Let's pray as we take up the shield of faith, put on the helmet of salvation. As we pray, like, let's take up the sword of the spirit and let's put on the armor of God so that we can keep praying. Let's put on the armor of God so that we can go to the battlefield of prayer. Prayer is the battleground. Prayer is the fight. Prayer is the enemy's stronghold. But, but, prayer is also the place where we find our strength and refuge. Prayer is the place where our fears disappear. Why? Because prayer is the place where we meet up with our commander, Jesus. That's where he's at. So let's put on the armor of God. Let's join our commander in Gethsemane. He's waving us in to join him in the fight. Let's pray together. Father, we're still desperate for you, God. We need you to do something. Lord, many sermons we have heard on word and prayer many books, many messages, many times, Lord, if we've been a Christian for any length of time, many times we felt the conviction that we need to be in the word more, that we need to pray more. And so many times those convictions have not led to actual fruit, not any enduring fruit. Father, will you give us a conviction that will last more than a couple of hours? Will you give us a fight, will you put in us a violence that will not be quenched by our hunger for lunch, by misbehaving kids later? Something on our to-do list. Father, there's so many things. There's so much resistance from the enemy when it comes to your people coming to you in word and prayer. Rightly so, because what would our city look like if it was filled with men and women of God who were dedicated to your word and to prayer? Father, will you do that in our church? Will you produce in us a people that love your word, that cling to your word, that are expert swordsmen, that bow our knees before you in prayer? Will you do that, God? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.